Let go of whatever you're holding on to, for the next few minutes at least. Give yourself a moment to slow down, breathe, and take a break while you explore what joyous and effective leadership can do for you. Okay, so these are not my words. These are actually the words you'll find on the homepage of the website of the Rockwood Leadership Institute. It was founded in 2000 by a group of environmental activists sitting around a kitchen table. You know, if more people realized how many brilliant ideas started kitchen tables, they would sit at them more often and we would sell a lot more of them. Anyway, I digress. The activists are sitting around a kitchen table and I'm thinking that they felt compelled to fuel the nonprofit movement by building leadership. I'm also thinking these folks thought that working with small groups, I think the technical term might be cohorts, would be essential because these nonprofit leader gigs are so damn lonely. Fifteen years into this adventure, there are 5,000 alums. Over 50% are leaders of color, over 60% women. Their programs run from year-long fellowships to one-week institutes, and attendees find them transformative. Today, my friend Darlene Nipper joins me. She's the CEO of the Rockwood Leadership Institute. There are about a gazillion things we could talk about. First on my list, the power of leadership development when you are a part of a cohort, a group of kindred spirits. Then we're going to dig into what she has learned about the elements of great nonprofit leadership and how Rockwood programs are designed to align with these elements. Oh, and Rockwood's commitment to building diverse leadership in the nonprofit sector seems to me it's about as strong as it gets. So I'm not going to miss the opportunity to ask her about that. I'm excited. I just used the phrase kindred spirits. For me, my guest is a kindred spirit, compelled to do what we can to fuel leadership in the nonprofit sector because the world is counting on all of us. And she and her team at Rockwood is driven to help leaders bring joy to the work each and every day. So today, we talk about bringing joy to the work so you can bring your A-game too. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. With over 25 years of leadership and advocacy experience, Darlene Nipper joined Rockwood in 2012 as a member of the training team. She previously served as Deputy Executive Director of the National LGBTQ Task Force, Executive Director of the BET Foundation, Chief Operating Officer at the National Association of Mental Illness, also known as NAMI, and founder of its Multicultural and International Policy Center. And she also served as the Director of LGBT Affairs in the office, Executive Office of the Mayor of D.C. Darlene is a native Washingtonian. She's an ordained interfaith minister. She practices mindfulness, meditation, deep presence, and living joy. Who, who wouldn't want all of those things? Darlene Nipper, welcome. Thank you so much for your work. Oh, Joan, thank you for yours. And thanks for having me on the show. It's so great to be with you. Uh, ditto. Um, so Darlene and I go back a ways, and this is actually one of the things that's wonderful about my podcast is I get to reconnect with people um, who I really like and admire and respect, and Darlene is one of them. So um, so you've been a nonprofit leader, Darlene, so have I. We empathize with the folks who are listening to us today that these jobs are super hard and they can be really, really lonely. Um, and I think that loneliness can actually make them much, much, much harder. 
Rockwood, which is closing in on its 20th year, was founded based on this notion of a cohort learning model. Could you tell us a little bit about that history? Because it's a core principle of the Rockwood framework. So what is, so why was that part of the original thinking of, and design? Well, I, this is making me laugh already because I was just talking to the two key co-founders, um, one of them, uh, Robert Gass, and the other one is Andre Carruthers. And then they were sitting around a table with a bunch of other folks. And, was it a kitchen um, table by any it chance? It was a kitchen table and I still have it here in my office. Awesome. So that's, that's the cool thing. It's still, it's still here. It's not in the kitchen, but it's still here. Um, and... I said, Robert, you know, this is amazing. You know, you thought of all these incredible things, the cohorts, they're, they're so powerful now. And it's really the, the key in many ways to our work. And he said, you give us too much credit. We were just a bunch of people sitting around a kitchen table and voila, you know, like <laughs> we had no idea. And I think that's, um, I think there's something instructive there, you know, that, that uh, I heard in, in your intro as well, just the, so many things happen around kitchen tables and part of what um, the magic is in a cohort is that a bunch of people who have brilliant minds are just sitting together and get a chance to not be distracted by other things, share and explore and exchange ideas. That's a very powerful uh, combination. And so, I, you know, it's funny to listen to one of the key founders say, you know, no, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. We were just coming up with these great ideas together. And in fact, that is the core of what the work is that we do now. We yeah, it's funny. sit people together and come up with great ideas. <laughs> but the, I mean, the great idea could have been we should create a leadership institute and not create cohorts, right? Right, right. I mean, that's, but that, but that in and of itself is the magic of cohorts that like, when you do get groups of people, small groups of people together, things happen that may not happen if you just had one person or only two people together. So it's just fascinating that in fact, they prove their own point by being a cohort in the beginning, Yep, which is very, very interesting. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's yeah, true. It's just yeah. cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and do you find like, that folks who come to Rockwood are just simply just kind of hungry for connection? I do think that that's a part of it. They're deeply hungry for connection. I think there is a loneliness in um, taking on leadership roles. There's a way in which, at least in the construction of organizations, um, you know, in our culture, uh, you know, lots of people have been working with colleagues for a while and then they get to this role where they're the, you know, the so-called leader and there are not that many people around them anymore in the same way. And so it becomes really lonely. We hear that a lot. Uh, people feel isolated. Um, so. Um, I, I, I find that to be true um, in my work as well. Um, so you have, um, so this institute offers a variety of different programs, all in cohorts, and you have to sort of build that cohort for every program that you design, right? So you design a program that says, we're going to do, uh, you know, women leaders, of, say, mm-hmm. um, and people apply to your program. Mm-hmm. And do you think about, so there seems to me there's two pieces of the puzzle, but maybe I'm mm-hmm. wrong. There's one, should, you know, should Joan be someone we have at Rockwood? 
And then there's also uh, who would Joan fit around that table best with? Who's the best combination of people around the table? And um, I can see how you could, how you could not, I could see how you pick me, but I could see how you would pick an individual person based on a set of ap- applications. How do you know that you got the right mix? Yeah, this is, um, this is, I think, our special sauce. I mean, one of the biggest uh, talents here at Rockwood is people figuring out how to group people together. And um, we have something that I always call a readiness filter. And so uh, what that means is that actually, Joan, you would be great, but it doesn't mean you're, I mean, you're a fabulous person. I love all the work you've done. doesn't mean you're ready for this moment and this cohort at this time. Right. So a lot of what we try to figure out is what's going on in a person's life and their trajectory. Where are they in their career? And then we try to match, you know, that collective of people together uh, with a special sort of readiness that will conjure up, you know, collective, you know, idea uh, generation, really, you know, collective work, collective learning community for for growing one's leadership. So. It's a, it's a complex dynamic of cascading sort of criteria and ideas and things that we're trying to read. If it's, if it's a women's uh, cohort, then yes, you know, we're looking at trying to bring women together. But then is that woman, you know, do they have the time in there right now to spend a solid week or three weeks if it's over a year together? Are, are they in the right place in their uh, leadership journey to actually go full on because one of the things that we always say is that you have to be committed to be to go deep if you come to Rockwood that's the thing you 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 have to be ready to actually dig in because again we do the inside out work so it's like dig into not just what's happening in the organizational structure but what's happening for you in your structure and how is that impacting the environment that you're working in the organization the network etc so um, it's kind of magic and it's also, you know, science and, you know, a little bit of luck. And ultimately, we've had hundreds and hundreds of really fabulous cohorts uh, that have come together for thousands of people to go through this training. And it's been really remarkable. Um, so did I hear in that, do you look for people who are at similar points in their trajectory so that they have that experience, that they have that shared experience or... Um, are you looking for a diversity? So, so I'll give you an example. So there's a, <clears throat> a New York City LGBT leadership group and it's mm-hmm. right. It's self-moderated and people are at all, you know, you got, uh, you know, the new kid on the block and you've got the person who's been in their seat for 25 years. And um, it's just luck of the draw, depending on changes in leadership at each of these organizations. I generally found that it was really helpful to have when I was a new kid on the block to have some of the more uh, veterans at the table and, um, and vice versa. I think that the veterans often found that a new set of eyes and ears on an organization or the movement could be really valuable. So I just, I sort of wonder how you approach this notion of yeah. at similar points in the trajectory or diverse points in the trajectory. You know, our biggest, that's, that's really uh, key. And I'm, I'm appreciating that you brought that up. Our biggest goal is actually to have as much cross sector, cross experience. So as much diversity of experience as possible. However, 
depending on the cohort and what we're trying to accomplish, it will, it, it'll shift. So there may be a group of folks that are all emerging leaders that really want to dive into what it means to be an emerging, you know, newer person to person to the work. And then we might create more of a group that's just new leaders. Yes. But our ultimate goal as Rockwood is, is really cross sector. Like we, we get happy when we can have the most diverse experience together because we believe that that's a cocktail that really creates a lot of opportunity for, you know, new learning and new growth as leader. Um, so let's step back because I suspect we have some listeners that are not familiar with Rockwood. And I need, I think part of the reason I wanted you to join us is because I wanted them to be familiar. So um, you have kind of, if I have this right, and uh, you'll tell me otherwise, kind of two different sort of leadership development strategies you have, sort of the, the sort of the full year cohort, and then you have week-long institutes, and I'm not sure I'm getting the vernacular right, but you'll tell me. And so can you describe the distinction between the two? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much right. I mean, we have, uh, we have these week-longs. We call them the art of leadership. They are uh, very largely cross-sector. Uh, we, 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 for all of our programs, we, we will do specialized, tailored, sector-specific groups or um, Groups that are oriented around a topic or or an experience, new leaders again, um, women of color, perhaps people working in uh, racial and human rights, uh, all kinds of things. So that happens across fellowships or week longs. But the two ways that I think of it is sort of a breadth and a depth. So we can get a lot of people to go through weeks week longs that are, just get a great experience really get a solid foundation around some core leadership principles and how to, uh, you know, practices and how to, you know, employ those practices in their own work. And then the year longs are typically multi-session, usually three weeks, could be two full weeks. And then we do work with folks in between. So they may get coaching in between, uh, lots of uh, reading materials and so on in between that might be particular to the sector or the group that we're working with. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious about when you do work within the sector because I, uh, within a particular sector and how you navigate that, I, um, I certainly found, and I, I, I bet you did when, as being part of the LGBT movement, that when you're in a particular sector, um, you have to actually work to get people to think like collaborators as opposed mm-hmm. to competitors and um, to sort of take off their organizational hat and put on their movement hat. And this would be obviously completely transferable to women's issues or, I mean, you name it. So, so you know, we may be talking about the LGBT movement, but, um, uh, and I wonder... And a lot of that is about trust building a lot, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of that about is, a lot of it is power and money based, right? If I, if, if you have a donor that gives to the LGBTQ task force and I have a donor that gives to GLAAD, you know, should the twain meet, right? So I wonder how you contend with the sort of competition collaboration issue in sector specific um, uh, week long a- adventures. Well, you know, typically when we're doing something like that, it's it's kind of interesting because my, my first reaction was, well, you know, we take them in the back. 
okay. You, you can just leave it there. Take them in the back. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> but, but when we work with those folks, um, again, when we, when we bring the groups together, we're real, really looking for a type of readiness to sort of rip apart any of the norms that are not helping every, all boats sail. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're asking people to, um, to lay down any of these kinds of concerns. Now, lots of times there are competitions or issues that have come up between groups and we help people to navigate that, frankly. Um, we support them and coach them through that kind of thing and then see if we can hopefully build a stronger connective tissue for the movement of that body of work for that sector. Um, sometimes, you know, these things go really well and sometimes they're, they're really more challenging. And, uh, you know, we've got, we've had a ton of different experiences, but I can tell you this, most of the people, part of that readiness is getting them in that, get, getting them get clarity before they get into that room that they want to do something different, that this is about exponential growth in leadership, not only for the individual but for the collective and broad, and more broadly for the movement. Like we're trying, we're all going towards the same goals. And what can we do? Are you ready to actually step up and like put aside some things or work through? There'll be an opportunity and time to work through some of this stuff together because you spend a lot of time with each other. But this is one of the things that we talk about with people before they get into the, the actual cohort, particularly yeah. when we're doing sector work. Yeah, that makes sense. So you sense. have to be ready to do it. If you don't want to do it, you know, there's no harm, no foul. It's like, but we, this is probably not the right space for you. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, so I'm also guessing that my listeners are, their ears are totally peaked up to say, this sounds so awesome. I, I don't know how I would make the time and it must be really expensive. And I wondered, you know, leadership development is something people have to invest time in. Um, and I, I talk about this a lot with my clients. So I just, I just wonder, not that this is a complete pitch for Rockwood, but I also feel like as long as we're talking about it, like, <clears throat> how, how do you make the, you know, how do you got to invest the time? Is this something, uh, is this something that's really expensive for people? I think it, I, I think it's, it, it's a valuable investment in one's leadership. Right. And so what happens with Rockwood is that the word of mouth value that people get out of the program is so strong, is so profound um, that people are scambling to figure out how to, you know, make the time Completely. to get into the program. That is totally you know, true. It's, it's extraordinary to me. I mean, this is not like I'm not blowing smoke. I'm just saying, wow, every time it happens where people are just like, I'm trying so hard. I just this happened to me a few weeks ago. I really want to be in Rockwood next year. And I've just. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I just, I love that people are now so committed and it takes a lot of time investment. So this is hard. This is really hard stuff for people to do. And I think it really matters that people are taking the kind of time and it does cost. So let me just be clear. It costs real money. And, um, and a lot of people are now asking their funders. Yes. They're, they're funders to support them. And I have, you know, tools that I help folks uh, use to go to their funders and say, look, if you really want to invest in this work, you need to invest in my leadership and the leadership of folks on this team by making sure that we have resources to go through 
uh, leadership support programs. So we, I talk about this a lot with prospective coaching clients who say, you know, I don't have money in my budget for professional development. I, I use actually very similar, you know, funders are very interested in fueling leadership in the nonprofit sector. They're very, they're not very interested in losing good people. They're not right. very interested in a lot of turnover at the top. And so there's right. a vested interest on the part of funders to really fund your professional development. The other thing I was just going to say is I, I, I have learned over time, um, uh, through both my my consulting work and my coaching work, but also the membership site I uh, I run for small you know, board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, and there are thousands of them in the nonprofit leadership lab. These people are ready, willing, and able. They're so hungry for professional development, yeah. even though even though they may be like the only staff person, right? Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter. You don't run a big organization, a small organization. I generally find that there is such an appetite for professional development among nonprofit leaders. It's really inspiring to me. So it doesn't surprise me that people are, are clamoring all over Rockwood. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And to that point, just so that folks know, uh, we do have a sliding scale for all of our programs in Rockwood. Uh, so if someone is really interested and they go on and they see that it costs whatever, you know, because there's a range of different prices for different things, um, they it should be clear on our website and other places that we do have a sliding scale. But definitely for smaller organizations that have smaller budgets, you know, we try to get you in there because our goal is actually to have everyone who actually is ready to go through and, again, grow their leadership, come through our programs or go through something. We really want to support, as you said at the beginning, you know, uh, a nonprofit sector that truly has strong, vibrant uh, leaders that are able to, you know, move us to the next place. We try, we try to change the world, to put it lightly, right? And we need all of these folks to do it. So we do our best to try to make sure that we can help you to get into the programs. Awesome. So when I, um, when I took a look at some of the agendas, um, <clears throat> I saw things like understanding your leadership style, craft, crafting a vision, sort of some of these critical areas of focus. Um, it is l- less about the tactical, if I am I'm getting this right. It's less about how do I build a board or how do I run a great board meeting? It's much, it's, it's a, your, your plane flies at a higher altitude than that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're thinking about leadership and we do our work in what we call practices, right? So it's purpose and vision and performance and resilience and personal ecology. You know, how do you make sure that you're doing well and your whole system is doing well and partnership and those kinds of things. So we're talking about it at that that level. That said, there are some really concrete tools that you will get that actually will help you to run a better board meeting, to run a better meeting period, mm-hmm. and all of those practical things. We actually believe that if we start at this altitude of like a leadership writ large, this idea of the key, what we think of as the key elements of a strong leadership, like clarity of purpose, vision, alignment amongst your teams, and those kinds of things, that some of the other things become much more doable. 
So that's just our approach to the work. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. So we're we're having a conversation about leadership development and leadership development in cohorts um, with Darlene Nipper, who is the CEO of the Rockwood Leadership Institute. Um, really interesting background, has been a leader in the LGBT movement, the executive director of the BET Foundation, has worked in the mental illness space um, and in city government. Um, so... <clears throat> You've touched the lives of thousands of leaders since you arrived at Rockwood. What do you, what do you and your colleagues, what have you learned about what it takes to be a really good leader? You know, it's really interesting because we had this little quip that we would say uh, years ago, and I think we're starting to add to it. So it went something like everyone can lead, right? Like, and in fact, for most of us, we're going to lead in some way, shape or form in our lives, you know, if we live to be any, you know, any adult age, right? Um, and so, so that, and that's real. And what we would say now is, yep, everyone can lead and, you know, solid leaders actually grow other leaders. That would be the shifting point for us at this point. And what that means is like, we know that we, it's difficult to grow anything or move anyone to a transformative place if we haven't become pretty skilled at that thing ourselves, right? So rather than being focused on the I as much, what we would say is that we're building stronger movements because as we get better, we're working to, as we transform, we're working to transform other leaders so that the work that we're do, wanting to see, the change that we want to see in the world actually can happen. Most of the things that people, the visions that people have and the dreams that people have can't be solved or, or, or achieved by just us. Very little, you know this, can actually be achieved by one person. So this idea of the, the understanding how I connect to other people, this idea of shifting from individual to more of a collective or network notion of like, how do I partner or, you know, connect with other folks to achieve this kind of change that we're trying to see in the world, particularly for nonprofit leaders and beyond any nonprofit leaders, especially for folks who are working in the social justice space and movements like some of the ones that you've mentioned already, environmental, LGBTQ, et cetera. These are big, big shifts in society that folks are working toward and they need to be able to ensure that they're not just you know moving along but that the entire movement or sector of people that they're working with is moving along that's what's key that's where we're trying to get people to work now so you know i i, I definitely do a, a good amount of coaching of ceos and this this um, balance or trying to be both a leader and a manager is one that um, that I think that nonprofit leaders really struggle with that that um, oftentimes I mean not certainly not all the time, but oftentimes someone has come up to the job through the program work right and so this leadership piece may not be as clear to them or vice versa and how do you, I mean, what's your, what's your take on it? I mean, you've, you've sort of, you know, sort of been high touch with so many leaders. Um, do you find it a, a difficult balance for people? Do you feel like um, one is harder than the other? I think I 
tend to think that the leadership part is can be a little bit elusive to people if they haven't had that experience. And so it becomes really challenging. Now, I would say that most people have had the experience of leading, have had the experience of, you know, being in power and, you know, working with that in a good way, but they don't always, those things don't always come together for them. So they don't see it necessarily. It may be something that happened in their life. It may be something that happened when they were in school. It may be an experience they had before where they really were in their leadership mode, but it may have gone right over them. So what we try to do is connect those things for folks. And I think people have a real challenge with it. You would be shocked, I think, to rec- maybe not because of your work, but a lot of people have what I would term like an imposter syndrome oh. when it comes to leadership. It's like they don't believe they can. It's like they think, how did I get? Why? Why am I here? Who? Who? Am I supposed to be the one? Oh, oh, I I have the answer to that question, (laughs) you know. And so that's a big challenge for folks. On the other hand, in nonprofit leaders too, there's a, you know, sometimes people come up through programs, they don't have experience with finances or things of that sort. And it becomes really tricky. They don't really understand the board dynamics and how that really works as a particular structure in a nonprofit structure. I think those are things people can learn, but the bigger challenge is how to live into the truth of what you bring, your gifts, your special gifts as a human being. Um, So I can tell you that not only do I know about imposter syndrome, I I think that I very much lived it when I made my shift from corporate America to the nonprofit space. I, I, I used to I used to sit in my office and wonder when the real executive director was going to come in and ask me for the keys. Um, and um, <laughs> and you know the real executive director actually never did come in because I, I think she was sitting at the desk. But exactly. nonetheless. Um, this is an interesting one. Do you have your experience at Rockwood with folks who came who are, I mean, I, th- I see more of this, folks who are coming from corporate America into the nonprofit space. Um, it's a, it's, it's very, I mean, I can speak from real experience on this. It's a very, very different model. It's a, it requires very different things from you. And like, I, I actually kind of wondered if there was, if you'd ever done, uh, a week long just for people who had arrived from that other land called, you know, <laughs> corporate KPI land. I need to do that. I'm, you I'm totally thanking you for. Need, you totally need to do this. Yeah, we need to. We need to make that happen. So we should talk about that more. Um, I see it all across the board, though. I see it in all kinds of people. I think one of the things that we learn at Rockwood is that, um, you know, a lot of people thinking about this notion of diversity too, think that they're the only ones, but there's something in the human condition that we are seeing. It's so consistent and so profoundly present for so many people across all sectors, across all lived experience that we recognize that this is something when people go into something that's slightly new or different or where they have less you know, experience or knowledge or clarity, this, this notion, and for lots of other reasons too, this notion of like, somehow I'm, I'm, I'm not the one that is the one that can answer these questions or is supposed to be here comes up. There are a lot of, uh, again, women, people of color who are experiencing a lot of, uh, oppression and trauma 
uh, trans, you know, gender uh, nonconforming people, all kinds of people who feel difference profoundly also will show up into these, these roles and feel like they're out of place somehow. Maybe they weren't supposed to get here. So there's lots of things going on. I think for individual people, and there are lots of different experiences that cause this notion of uh, imposter syndrome. I think that's totally true, and I want to come back to that. But I just want just to finish my finish a thought about the corporate to nonprofit leap. Um, I think that one, one of the biggest things for me. I mean, I used to I used to joke. I remember joking after my first nonprofit retreat uh, after 15 years in corporate America, and I went to a colleague and I said you know, you, you didn't tell me that people cried at staff retreats. Like, why didn't you tell me that? Like, I, I needed to be prepared for that. And it's such a common thing in the nonprofit sector. But it's the notion that you run something in corporate America and that you lead something in a nonprofit space. It's, mm. it's so different. It's so mm-hmm. different. And I ended up finding it to be um, really um, freeing, kind of, and also just sort of allowing me to exercise a, maybe a muscle I didn't even know that I had. But I do think that what 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 one of the that's why I think it would be interesting for you all to do something like that because I don't think that people who come over from corporate America are all always as keenly aware of this the power of relationship and empathy versus goals and tasks and right. And how uh, actually you don't get, you don't get the, um, the, the success metrics without that relationship, empathy, what I call sort of three dimensional management. And I, I feel like it's a piece of the puzzle that some, that I, uh, that I, that I feel like, um, People who come over from corporate America into nonprofit need to have their eyes open about what that looks like and what a wonderful opportunity it is to manage and lead in that way. Um, so, you know, just something that I've observed. Yeah, no, I think I think that folks will be would be like shocked because we say relationship before task, not instead of task. But that's like a, a Rockwoodism, this relationship before task. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the core elements of what we're working with is, is, is okay, sure, we use the individual, um, you know, as a catalyst. But it's, it's, it's your relationships and how you show up to those relationships that is one of the greatest tools that we have. And we say relationship before task because actually in business folks would find this kind of, you know, maybe surprising or corporate folks uh, because it allows for a level of efficiency, actually. Right. Like if you if you work through all of that stuff, you get clarity about that stuff up front, then it's not interrupting you when you're actually trying to get something done. I, I, I'm, I'm so all over this. I actually ended up, I, I, I recorded a podcast last week and I never know the order of things. So, um, if you are a regular listener, I have no idea which one's coming first, but so I interviewed this guy named Michael DePass from the Center for Creative Leadership. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about managing rapid change organizations. And he was talking about the use of polarity thinking and polarity mapping, right? And it's actually, and his fundamental premise here was um, 
the 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 greater you manage the tensions in a changing situation and most nonprofits are always in a changing situation the the better capable the more capable you manage the tension the faster you can go and it's somewhat counterintuitive to people because they think oh so i need to sit down and talk to you know, let's say I started out as a scrappy organization and now I'm much more buttoned up, professional, larger, like, mm-hmm. right. How do I, how do I, um, move there? And if I don't sit down and talk about what's good about scrappy and what's good about buttoned up and, and what, what it would it look like if we screwed this up, right? Those kind of investments up front actually, um, I, I think that there are some people who think, really, I have to do that? Like, can't I just, just go? No, you can't just go. And that piece of it, that relationship piece of it is so core to whether or not the change you seek can actually come to life. Yeah, a lot of times we're doing things that we think are actually creating change, but actually they're just, it's just movement. It's movement. It's not really changing. You don't know until a few minutes later that actually nothing really changed because the rubber band effect that comes back. We say you can only move at the speed of trust. Mm. And what that really means is that we know each other. You and I could talk about anything. Right. Like it's but 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 there's upfront. You you did a bunch of upfront work to make that possible. Right. So it's like relationships first and. Yeah, it's very efficient. But hey, I know it's hard for folks who don't tend to think of it that way. Yeah, um, it's a new it's a new and intre- it was a new and interesting muscle to exercise. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to spend a few minutes talking about building diverse leadership in the sector. Um, sure. There are a lot of factors that thwart it. Um, I'd love to hear about what you're doing in this arena. And I know folks are so hungry to learn and understand and to identify ways to educate themselves, to move the dialogue forward in their organization. So what you've learned and how our listeners might further their own journey. Yeah, well, I think what we've learned is that um, it's it makes for a stronger, better, you know, uh, more effective organization when the work has been done to deal with all the tensions that are there as well, right? right? So going back to your other podcasts, but but so when you do the work to allow for the diversity, just it, it seems really you know maybe Pollyannish or something, but the, the 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 more diverse thinking, the possibilities for solving problems is just exponentially increased. It's not to say that, you know, having all, you know, black folks or whatever is is better. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is that if you can create a diverse environment where people have diverse experiences, people have diverse backgrounds, you can increase the amount of uh, creativity uh, that you find in an organization to solve problems. And that's what we're all doing. We're all working to solve problems to, you know, create change and achieve whatever missions we have, right? So, so, so that's what we're, what we're learning. What we see with these organizations where people do it really well, where they've just got all kinds of lived experiences, people from different backgrounds, real, real, real depth of diversity in the leadership ranks, um, is that they're doing really well. So that's the thing to know. And what we have noticed is that, by the way, uh, that communication and relationship stuff is actually foundational to being able to build a solidly diverse 
diverse environment or, or, or organization. So we take people back to like courageous conversations and, uh, you know, just how do I talk about things that are hard or different uh-huh. as the baselines for how to build an environment that is truly inclusive. I, yeah, I, I, I am convinced that that's a, that's a pretty core um, a core attribute and skill that people have to learn is that, you know, if you lead a fairly homogenous organization, that's pretty damn tidy. Um, it isn't very creative, right? Yep. It's not going to be innovative. It's not going to necessarily come up with a new idea. I mean, it might, but it won't. It'll be more luck than anything else, right? But yep. that leading a diverse organization, sort of like, I always talk about this as like dinner parties. If I'm hosting a dinner party with a whole bunch of people that are just like diverse out the wazoo, like <clears throat> that's going to be a bucking Bronco dinner to host, yes, right? Yes. And keeping everybody in their saddles is a, is a lot harder than if it's just all these same people that feel the same way. And um, I think that leaders really... Um, Leaders need to actually sort of embrace the messiness of diversity. There's actually a oh, great sure. there's a great book by Tim Harford. I forget it. It's just called Messy, I think. And it all t- it talks about the transformation that comes from what people generally use as a pejorative meaning, you know, sort of mess. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing that the thing that's challenging, I think, in our culture in the in the states, really, frankly, in lots of places around the world is that there are we've been operating in oppressive systems where particular people have experienced you know being on the short end of the stick you know being experiencing all kinds of violence discrimination all the things all the oppression and other people have had very different experiences of of privilege and so there's a lot to unpack so so to your point that you can't just do it and expect that you know you know everything's just going to go great People have a lot of experiences based on the unfortunate circumstances of oppression in our society. So doing it is, 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 a, is a bit of work and the results, the outcomes, the possibilities are extraordinary. So it's, it's, it, we would say it's, it's worth the work, right? It's worth right. the work. But there is work. And I think going back to the tension point, if you can create an environment where you can actually show up fully and then deal with what actually arises with the group of people that you have there, then I think uh, you're well on your way to a lot of great success. Um, yes, I, I, I don't think that people understand the investment that's required. Um, how many people have said, you know, I just need to, I just need to have more diverse ponds to fish in for hiring. Right. And then I can just make the, I'll wait and I'll just make real uh, diverse hires. And, but if you haven't, if you haven't done the work and you haven't, um, you haven't exercised the muscle among your staff of have, how to have hard conversations, how to hear something that feels hard to you. Um, yeah. Y- you can bring diversity to the table in all kinds of ways, but but those folks will not feel welcome. They won't feel like they belong. And ultimately, they'll go. I mean, I, I think, right? Absolutely. I mean, we see that all the time in organizations. And, you, you know, you've seen some of the work of like Francis Carruthers. I know you know Francis and others who have just put out these reports that like there are lots of people of color, for example, who want to be in the roles, who have the experience to be in the roles, who get in the roles, and all of a sudden they're out of the role. 
because the environment is not really ready for that actual person, for anyone to come into it in that way. Look, no one is doing this perfectly. So let's be clear about that. I I think that's the the kind of misunderstanding that we have that's making it even more challenging because we think, oh, there's someone over there and they're just, they're all got it all together. This is a, you know, a societal issue. So uh, these tensions that we're seeing, we see it in society. We see it, what's happening around us. Uh, so uh, I think the commitment has to be to to deal with what arises. Yeah, deal with what arises. Because the, if you get a bunch of different people together, stuff is going to arise. So yeah. knowing that and being committed to the work instead of to a one-off, you know, I don't know, diversity training or whatever it may be, is very important in order for you to have ongoing success with really developing a a very inclusive environment. And it's not just about race, although I think race is a critical issue, but it's about all kinds of things. You know, lots of our environments have have no accessibility. I mean, we're still so ableist, you know, trans people are still having incredible challenges being in the workplace. I mean, there are lots of people with all kinds of lived experience who are just not finding our organizations to welcoming places for them. So we have a lot of work to do. Uh, But what I want to kind of impress upon people is that what we're seeing is for the organizations who are doing this, they're doing really, really well. Yeah. They're doing really well. I want to ask, I have two kind of final questions here, Darlene. One is, one is, um, so uh, let's say I'm an executive director or CEO of an organization and I am a white person of privilege. Um, and I want this for my organization. I know that it's important. I have a commitment to it. Am I, am, am I the right uh, am I the right leader or messenger for that? Do I need to bring someone to that? So I, I get this question a lot. Like, I'm deeply committed to it, but I'm a white person of privilege like, is it mandatory that I go and find someone to bring in? I think that's that's a question I get asked a lot. And then we'll, then we'll wrap up. So am I, as a, as a white person of privilege, am I capable or credible to lead diversity work in my organization? Well, look, the first part is that it is critical that you take a stand on this issue as a white person of privilege. Right. That's the most important thing, you taking a stand. Getting the help that you need to do it well in an organization, it's just the same thing that all of us do. Absolutely. Should you get help and support to make sure that, you know, you're covering, you're going to have blind spots. It's just natural. You're a white person of privilege. You don't have the same lived experience that I do. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just real, right? It's real. So getting someone to help you to maybe see some of your blind spots, understand some dynamics that you may not be able to with your experience, automatically notice or be aware of is absolutely helpful as well. But what I want to impress here is do stand up as the white person with privilege for the importance of this work. Right. Definitely make it clear that you're committed to it and you're going to do whatever it takes to get the right folks to get the help that you all need to make the changes that you need to make in the organization. Right. And, I, and the last point is because I know that the impact that we will have greater impact of our work we will do more innovative creative smarter things as a result of having a diverse group of people at the table 
Absolutely. As opposed, Absolutely. right, as opposed to folks who think it's just about, you know, some kind of box checking exercise. So. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Recognizing that, like, again, you have what you have, but how cool is it to have other people who have a very different experience can bring stuff to you that you could never do on your own. That's, that's the role of being a CEO anyway. Like, can we do all of the things that need to be done? Absolutely not. Right. It's just, it's just one different area. Sometimes I think we over, you know, we over, uh, we make this area so sensitive and impossible. And in particular, I would say to white leaders, don't back away from being real about what's needed. You can get whatever help you need, but you need to come out and stand up very strongly and very clearly in support of an inclusive environment that actually shows leadership from all kinds of people and not just one type of person. Because yes. part of what we're trying to disrupt is inequity of power yep. as it is. I mean, that's the issue here, right? So let's, let's show it from our post. You have a lot of power. You can shift the dynamics in your organization, even in your sector, if you st- stand up and make it very clear to folks that not only is it not acceptable, but more things are possible when you actually include various types of people with various lives, lived experience in the organization to achieve its goals. Um, feels like the perfect way for us to um, to take this podcast out. We've been talking with Darlene Nipper, who's the CEO of the Rockwood Leadership Institute. Tell us your um, website address for listeners who are anxious to know more and be one of those Absol- clamorers. <laughs> Absolutely. It's rockwoodleadership.org, rockwoodleadership.org. And I I invited Darlene for a whole host of reasons. We were talking about the power of uh, leadership cohorts, talking about what the elements of great leadership are, what what it means to be a, a leader who values and stands up for diverse and inclusive environments. Um, and I also just wanted everyone to realize I, I like to be able to to put a spotlight on other folks who are champions for your success. And Darlene is clearly one of them. So Darlene, thanks for all the work that you've done, you're doing, and that you'll continue to do. And I really appreciate your taking the time today. Thank you, Joan. Really a pleasure to be with you. Ditto. Um, So that's it for today. And um, as always, thank you so much for the work that you do. And we will see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.